All right, this morning, this morning we are starting a new series. We have, um, if, if you are with us for the first time or the first time in a while, we have been on a journey through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we started this last fall, and we are about halfway through the letter, and we have broken the letter up into these kind of mini-series. And today we're starting a new series in chapter 8, called All for the Gospel. And when we use the word gospel, I just, I just want you to know what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel is we're talking about the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Grace for sinners. That, that is the gospel, grace for sinners. We're not talking about a specific book of the Bible. We're talking about the message from God that there is grace for sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is when we talk about the gospel. And what we're talking about over the next few weeks is how we as Christians can live a life that is representative of this message. That when people look at us and the way we live and the way we talk and the choices that we make, that it would invite curiosity from strangers, that it would invite uh, questions, and that People would want to know what we're about because there's something about us that's different. And what's different is that we believe the good news and that we follow Jesus. That's what's different. And your life should reflect that. So that, that's what this whole series is kind of about. Um, but today in particular, we're talking about kind of a tough issue that comes up in the New Testament a few times. And that is the issue of what do you do when other people don't agree with the way that you're living as a Christian? <laughs> I mean, as a Christian, have you ever done something or said something that another Christian was like, you shouldn't do that? I don't think it's right. Maybe you do think it's fine, but they don't think it's right. What do you do in a situation like that? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I remember, um, and specifically, we're going to be talking about this idea that love is, love is better. Love is what we need in those kind of situations. Um, you might not know this, but Pastor Scott and I, Pastor Scott was the guy who was up here earlier, and we, we used to work together at a stone fabrication shop. Uh, we both um, fabricated granite for co- kitchens and bathrooms for a few years together before, before we um, joined together to lead this church. And during that time, we had some interesting conversations. There was this one day, I remember, a young man who we worked with who was kind of struggling in his faith. He would talk to both of us about issues of faith. And he came to us one day with this great question. It was just a great question. I wasn't ready for it. Um, but it was just a great question. He said, if you could ask God to give you one of his attributes, like, it, like if, you could, if God could rub off one of his attributes on you, which one would it be? And I thought to myself for a second, you know, and I, and I said, wisdom. I would want God's wisdom. And he went and asked Scott the same thing. And Scott paused for a few seconds, and he said, love. I would want love. And as soon as I heard Scott say that, I was like, yeah, that's better. <laughs> that's better. That's a better answer. I knew it. I knew it in my heart. I was like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I say love? Uh, and, and the truth is that there are just things about love that are better. Love can do things that knowledge can't do. Love can do things that knowledge can't do. When someone sins against you, and they hurt you or they offend you, knowledge is not going to help you get through that. Knowledge is not going to help you resolve that conflict. Love will. Love is able to overcome sin. We're told that many times in the Bible. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love can 
heal wounds. Love can undo the damage that sin does. Knowledge won't do that. Knowledge can't do that. Knowledge always has its limitations. And sometimes, sometimes knowledge can even make things worse. But love, love is better. Love is always better. I mean, knowledge and wisdom are good. They're good. You should know your, you, you should, you should be a person who knows and understands God's word. You should be a person who, who you know, memorizes verses and, and is always thinking about the things God has said. And you should be a person who is developing wisdom. Wisdom is critical for living life skillfully and for enjoying, for enjoying God. But love is better. Love is better than, than knowledge and wisdom combined. And so... Today, we're going to talk about a controversial issue, it's, it's, and it's one of my favorite things in this world, and that is meat. Meat, it's like the meat that you eat. We're going to talk about meat because God talks about meat, and I, I love meat. I am a meatitarian, if that's a thing. I consume meat every day, sometimes large quantities of meat. Have you ever got the meat sweats? I have literally got the meat sweats, and Pastor Scott was also involved in that. It seems like any story where my, my character is, is questioned, Pastor Scott is somehow involved. And so we were at the shop one day, and we just, it was a warm day, it was slow, we had the garage door open, and we have a grill, we had a grill there, we decided we were going to grill, grill steaks. And, and one of the guys from the shop went out and got these, like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, two-pound steaks. And we grilled them up, and we ate them. I mean, I ate every last... I, I know how to get all the meat off the bone. It's not pretty, but it's totally worth it. And I, I got the meat sweats. I thought I was going to pass out. I was sweating. This is like an hour later after it had set in. And it was great. So I, I'm just glad I did not live as a Christian in the first century because eating meat as a Christian in the first century was a controversial thing. First of all, you had to be well off to afford meat as a regular part of your diet. And secondly, there were a lot of Christians that thought eating meat was dishonorable to God. Like, you shouldn't do that. If you worship God, you should not eat meat. They thought it was wrong. And so the question we have to wrestle with today is this one. And, and I want you to listen to this carefully. If I'm convinced that I have the right to do something that other Christians think is wrong... Should I just ignore them and do what I want to do? Have you ever pondered that question? Let me put it another way. Should I limit my boundaries by the narrower, more restrictive views of other Christians? And maybe this is the simplest way to say it. How much should I let other people's views control my actions? How much should I let other people's views control my actions? Most people in our world today would say, not at all. You be who you're going to be. Don't worry about what other people think. But what does God say to that? How does God want us to, to, um, to respond to that question? We're going to look in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read most of the chapter today. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. If you do, you can follow along. We'll have the words up on the screen behind me. And this is what we, uh, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in chapter 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, 
but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's the word of God. That's what's going on. Here's what was going on in the church at Corinth. Christians were eating meat that came from animal sacrifices in pagan temples, which were all over the place. So you, what you had is, you had a lot of poor people. Now, meat was a delicacy. I already said, you know, meat was a delicacy. If you were poor and there were a lot of poor people in the church... You really didn't have access to, to meat. You couldn't afford it. And so the only time you ever ate meat was at a, some kind of banquet or ritual held in honor of a pagan god in this pagan temple. And so for them, and that's where, by the way, most of the meats in the ancient city of Corinth came from the pagan temples. Because these temples were gathering places. Oftentimes there would be like a courtyard. The temple would open up to a courtyard with tables and there were a, a dining hall and people would have lunch there. They would meet business partners there and eat this meat that was left over from an idol. So they would sacrifice part of the animal to an idol and then they would give part of what was left over to the priests who served in the temple and the rest would be sold in the dining area or sold in the meat market which was usually situated right outside the temple. So... If you could just imagine today, like you're at a beer garden or something at Greenfield Park and they have all the food trucks and the beer serving and all that kind of stuff, which is something we like to do in the summer, right? Now imagine there's an there's a idol temple right there, right behind all of that. That's basically kind of what it was. That was what the setup was. So eating meat offered, that had been offered as a sacrifice to idols was a normal way of life for, for people in Corinth who were well off. It's just what you did. And if you were a Christian following Jesus, it was controversial because if you had money and you had access to meat, it was probably no big deal. Like eating meat, it, okay, we know that this idol, if I follow Jesus, I don't believe in idols anymore. So it's okay for me to eat this meat. But there were a lot of Christians who didn't feel that way. And they thought, you know what? This meat is, is associated with that false god or idol and therefore, I can't be part of that anymore. It's not who I am anymore. Um, so you had two groups of people that could not agree on whether or not Christians should eat meat. And if you haven't already thought about this, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Don't we kind of look at drinking that way? 
as Christians today, isn't drinking? Alcohol is one of the things that we don't agree on, isn't it? So just, just put that in your back pocket. We're going to come back to it, okay? Listen again to verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So that is, it sounds like it doesn't fit. Like what's that doing there? But that's actually the theological foundation of this whole passage, of this whole argument. Okay, in other words, there's only one God, and that's the Father of our Lord Jesus. There's no other God. These idols, you know, Apollos and and Artemis and all of these other idols in Corinth and Greek pagan idolatry, they're lifeless. They don't really exist. But there were some Christians who didn't know this. They actually believed that these idols were real, that these gods were real, that there were some real spiritual forces at work because that's what they had been taught their whole life. They'd been taught that idols were real and that you worship these gods. These idols represent these real gods. And if you don't worship these gods and, you know, appease them, then you're going to face some kind of punishment and your, your life is going to suffer if you don't claim allegiance to these gods. And so, for many Christians, eating meat that had been offered to an idol was dangerous. It was just dangerous. And maybe for you, eating meat is no big deal. But to someone else in your church, they can't eat the same meat without feeling guilty inside. Because for them, it takes them back to the world of that idol. So there were Christians who would eat meat in the temple of the pagan god, in the actual temple, and it was fine. And Paul even says, they're not real, it's fine. You, can, you have the freedom to eat that meat. It's your right as a follower of Jesus, to eat whatever meat you want. But if some other Christian sees you eating that meat in that pagan idol and their conscience is weak, they might then be tempted to eat the same meat. And do you know what the danger is? As soon as they eat that meat, they feel guilty inside. They feel ashamed. They feel like now... I can't be with my church anymore. I'm going to distance myself from other Christians because I have this shame and I have this guilt. And now they start falling away and their spiritual health is in danger. Right? That's what's going on. And they just, they get drawn back into that old way of life and that old system where I have to try to please some God who I don't know and who doesn't want to be known and I just have to Give them whatever they want. Otherwise, my life's going to go sideways. And they get drawn back into that life, that way of life, that, that false religious system. So we have two groups of people, the weak and the strong. Those who are weak and vulnerable and those who have knowledge. Who are those with knowledge? Who are the ones with knowledge? These people are the ones who could eat meats and not feel bad about it. That's who, these are the... These are the Followers of Jesus who had no issues eating meat. They could afford it. They didn't believe in pagan gods. They believed I belong to Christ. There's only one God. And I should enjoy, you know, meat, alcohol, whatever it is. It's a gift from God. I can enjoy it. I don't have to feel guilty. It's not harming me. I'm not controlled by it. Therefore, I have the freedom to enjoy it. Right? 
These people are generally more open-minded and flexible when it comes to matters of conscience. And on issues that tend to divide Christians, they're usually better informed theologically. They're willing to embrace gray areas. That's generally who these people are in the church. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being open-minded? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with having that knowledge? What's wrong with having that freedom? Here's the problem. Knowledge puffs up. That's what he says. Knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. It makes us look down on other people who don't hold the same view. Isn't that true? So I, I don't care who you are. Maybe you're one of those Christians who feels like it's wrong to drink. It's just wrong. Christians shouldn't drink. What if somebody sees you? What if this? What if that? Okay? And if you feel that way, and if you feel strongly enough about it, you probably look down on others who disagree. <laughs> That's what knowledge does. You feel like, I know everything there is to know about this issue. I know I'm right. And you're wrong. It's right, it's right or wrong to some people. On the other hand, if you think, I have the freedom to drink, and other Christians don't, you can look down on those Christians too, because they're wearing a straight jacket. Or whatever you want to, however you think about those people. They don't know what I know. They don't have a, a, a mature conscience that's oriented to God's grace. Therefore, they can't drink. It makes them feel guilty. I'm better than them. I can kick back and enjoy a cold brew. Right? I'm the blessed one. So, who are the weak? This is one thing we make, need to make clear. The weak are not Jewish Christians. That's not who he's talking about. It was new Gentile believers who were raised to believe in and worship false gods. We are not talking about people who place restrictions on themselves because of their personal preferences and convictions and are not tempted to indulge in eating meat. That's not who we're talking about. Okay? If the issue was alcohol, we would not be talking about people who don't drink because they just want to be safe and feel it's morally right for them, because who knows if another Christian might see you drinking and be offended, or if I drink in my house and my kids see me, they're going to turn out to be a raging alcoholic. Like, there's Christians who feel that way, and out of fear, they, they will not allow alcohol in their house. And, and I, let me just say this as a side note. If you're really concerned about your kids growing up and being tempted to drink too much, <laughs> keeping alcohol out of your house is not the answer. You probably already knew that. I mean, that, that, that is just not the answer at all. Um, so the weaker brother here is the person who, when they see you eat meat, or when they see you drinking, whatever it is, they will be tempted to eat meat and then indulge in eating meat until they violate their own conscience and are dragged back into that old lifestyle. That's who the weak are. We're not talking about spiritually mature people who don't drink because they think abstinence makes them a better Christian or because they just don't like beer. That's not who we're talking about today. So at the same time, the Bible states in several passages very clearly that those who lack the freedom to enjoy God's gifts are weak. They're weak. So another, they, they are more rooted in boundaries and conduct than they are in grace. There's a difference. They, like, they don't like gray areas. They like to draw lines. They like to be clear about what's right and wrong. For, so for example, if you 
or a person who doesn't have freedom to participate in drinking alcoholic beverages simply to enjoy them, and you've placed that restriction upon yourself because you think it's wrong, Paul would say that is a weak view. It is a, it is a weak view. That's what he would say. Because you are not accepting and embracing the freedom you have and even the example that Jesus and the apostles set for us. So, what do you do? How do you respond to weakness? Do you look down on weak people? Do you flaunt your freedom and strength in their face? No, you don't do that. You don't flaunt it. You don't look down on people. What do you do? You love. You love them. Because love is better than knowledge. Love is the answer. That's how you respond to weakness. Love is the answer. If you're the person who's looking down on others because they are exercising their rights, love is the answer. How can you love those people? I had a friend, I have a friend, whose dad, many years ago, was a candidate to be a deacon in his church. He was a great candidate. He was a godly man. He was devoted to his family. He had strong character. But there was one thing that they determined in the end disqualified him from being a deacon. He worked for Miller Brewing Company in the corporate office. He worked in the corporate office for Miller Brewing Company. So he was denied. Uh, He could not be a deacon in that church. Now, before you cast judgment on those people, whatever side you take, I, I, I know that there are people in here who think that is a, that was a good decision, and there are other people who are like, what? I mean, he's a leader. He was going to be a leader. He was going to be held to a higher standard. He's, a, he's supposed to be an example to others in the church. And what if, uh, what if a recovering alcoholic who's following Jesus now comes into the church, and, and they're tempted to, to go back to their old ways, and they find out there's a deacon who works for Miller Brewing Company. Maybe they're going to go headlong back into their former sins. I mean, those are all the questions that, you know, church leaders have to deal with. That, that is what, you know, church leadership is pretty much whatever you decide to do, you're going to offend or annoy somebody. You know? <laughs> Not really. But sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes you feel like, I'm stuck. No matter where we go on this, someone's going to be upset. Someone's going to be offended. Someone's going to be disappointed. What decision would you make in that situation? Now, what's interesting and surprising to me is that even though Paul includes himself with those who have knowledge, Paul is not coming down, he's saying, I'm with the people who have the freedom. That's what he's saying. He's including himself with that, with that group. He's calling out his own people. He's calling out the strong. He, this, is, this passage is a warning to the people who want to exercise their rights, to the people who are okay with eating meat. That's who he's calling out and saying, hey, you need to be careful. This is how he ends the chapter. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here's how it's said in in the New Living Translation. This is a great translation. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin... I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. And that word for meat in the Greek is a different word than before. This is any meat. Whether it came from an idol or not, he says, I'm not even going to touch the stuff 
because I don't ever want to cause another believer to sin. That's how serious this is to him. So let's go back to our original question. How much should you let the views of other people control your actions? So you have knowledge, you have freedom, you have rights. You feel like, I can do what I want to do. My conscience is clear. It doesn't matter. It's my business. Do you know who else had, had rights to do whatever they wanted to do? Jesus. Jesus had every right to do what his heart desired. He was pure before God. He had no evil intentions in his heart. He had no hidden or secret motives like we all do. He had no sin he was hiding. He had no double-mindedness. Whatever he said, he lived it out. He had a clear conscience before God. He never sinned. He was the Son of God. He had every right. I mean, his first miracle was turning water into wine. And, and yes, it was alcoholic wine. It was not... not I mean, the, the, the climate in the ancient Near East did not... I mean, grapes fermented. There was nothing you could do from stopping that. It was real wine. And at the end of the party, we learned that, he, that after he did that, everyone liked his wine better. There's no way they were talking about non-alcoholic wine. <laughs> okay? Jesus had the right to do whatever he wanted. And you know what he did at the end of his life? He laid down his rights. He laid it all down. He said, this isn't, my life is not my own. I'm not living for me. This isn't, this isn't about me. It's about my father. I came to do my father's will. I came to save my brothers. I came to lay my, my life down for my friends and even my enemies. And on the cross where, he was, where his life was slipping away and he was bleeding out, he prayed for his enemies. He was completely innocent and he prayed for his persecutors. He laid down his rights for those people. He loved them. Love accomplished that. The love of God through his son Jesus accomplished what we never could. He laid down his rights. He died for the church. You know, we often in the church talk about, oh, Jesus died for you. He died for your sin. You know what? If you were the only person on the earth, Jesus would have died for you. Have you ever heard that? I don't even know if that's true. I don't. It doesn't, I mean, maybe, theoretically, but that doesn't even matter. He didn't die just for you. He died for the church. He died for the body. He died for local churches who now gather together regularly to worship and praise God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are gathered together, united in the Spirit of the living God, every single week to remind ourselves that what we do in our personal lives affects everybody else. We're a family. We are a family that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's why we're called the body of Jesus Christ. And every member is vital to the health of the whole. So when, when, when we ask this question, how much should I let other people's views control my actions? Please do not get sucked into the world's way of thinking and be like, oh, you know what? What I, do in my, what I do is my business. It's not your business. I can do whatever I want. You do you. I'm going to be me. And if I want to drink, you know, I can drink and it's no problem. No, maybe that's true. You do have that freedom. But please do not forget that everything you say and do 
affects a gospel-formed community called Crosspoint Church. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. The choices you make, behind closed doors even, and, and he's talking about being out in public. You know, when you're out in public and, and someone else from your church sees you doing this, that could defile their conscience. That's true. But everything you do matters because we're a family and God brought us together to live that out and to demonstrate that to the world, that we love each other. We actually love each other. And do you know how we express that? By making those choices carefully and by carefully weighing each decision that we make in regards to the music we listen to, the things we watch, the things we eat, the things we wear, the things we drink. I mean, there's so many, there's so many issues we could talk about today. Should pastors wear jeans? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's people, who, I have offended people by wearing jeans. Does that mean I should stop? No, I don't feel like I should. It's not a black and white. It's one of those gray areas, and I'm okay with that. But it's not just about me. It's not just about you, it's about us. And you know what love does? And this is something we, we didn't talk about earlier, but one of those things love does that knowledge can't. Love can free you to lay down that thing. It's just to give up that thing that you love, whether it's, you know, beer or whatever it is. And if you're doing it out of love, you won't even miss it. Knowledge can't do that. Only love can do that. And you know how I know that? Because I'm married to my wife. And my wife and I came from, very, from different, different life experiences. Different life experiences. I enjoyed a lot of beer as a young man and a lot of other things. My wife grew up in a home where there was never alcohol in the house. Her parents chose to never have alcohol. They, she, my wife has never seen her parents drink in her whole life. They have chosen not to, and I respect them for that. And she decided, she decided that when she got married, it worked for her parents. She wants to do the same thing. And so she wasn't comfortable with me having beer in the house. You know, assuming we're going to raise a family and all this kind of stuff. I didn't like that. And so that was, a, that at first, was a point of tension for us in our marriage. And I realized it was wise for me, it was wise for me to lay that, that right down. And then on our honeymoon, on our honeymoon, I mean, when we're out of, I mean, on our honeymoon, she drank for the first time. And, and she got a little tipsy. I had to cut her off. <laughs> but, you know, she's like, oh, it's not so bad. This is fun. You know, whatever. She enjoys it. She learned to enjoy it. She's, she's not as much of a, you know. But eventually when we started having kids and all that, this, this, this conversation came back into the, into the home. And I, I want to tell you something about my wife that I love. And this is huge. My wife learned that alcohol is not bad. It's not bad. It's a gift from God that I, I enjoy. It. And I, my wife has never seen me drunk. In, in the 20 years that we've been together, she's never seen me drunk. She learned to trust me. And she learned to trust that I could, I could drink around my kids. My kids see me drink, and they know that I am enjoying it as a gift from God. They, they see me do it occasionally, periodically. As, it's just something I enjoy. They, they don't, they've never seen a problem with it, and I want to be able to show my kids that it's okay. But they might decide someday that they don't want it in their house, and that's totally fine. That's up to them. That's up to them. All right? But I'm not going to look down on them for whatever they choose to do. And I would hope they don't look down on me. 
And this is a decision that you, you all have the right to make. But you know what's more important? Love. As, as much as I like beer, I would be willing to lay it down again. I really would if it meant that some brother or sister of mine, if, if, you know, would, would not be caused to stumble or sin. Love is better. So it's not, it's not about who's right and wrong. There are so many gray areas in our culture. Drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, vaping, smoking marijuana where it's legal, all, you know, dancing, gambling, clothing, plastic surgery. There's so many things that Christians divide over. And some of those things aren't gray areas to some people. And that's okay. Just remember that love is better. So, how much should I let the actions of others control? How much should I let the pe- other people's views control my actions? I think the answer is, as much as love tells you to. As much as love tells you to. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you, Father, that, that your word gives us guidance and that you give us freedom to develop wisdom on our own and to make choices on our own. And we ask, God, that we would be a community of faith that looks out for each other, that puts other people's needs and interests before our own, that we would love deeply, and that we would be known as a church that loves deeply, and that we would bring honor and glory to you, Father, in all of these areas. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Don't forget, next Sunday we're going to baptize some folks, and we're going to keep going with our series Thanks again. Have a great week.